Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, it's your ER MacGyver here, Dr. Ward. And last but not least, this is Praz the Sandman, numbing your mind, body, and possibly your soul through the radio waves. That's very soothing. Uh, It's very poetic and sad. I spare nothing. (laughs) Well, we could certainly use some of that numbing this week, as I think it's time we pick up where we left off on the Oregon Trail. And this week, hopefully, we won't be Oregoners. We're going to deal with some accidents that were non-disease-based. Now, uh, Ward, you weren't with us last week. You have recently joined the party. But do you remember playing Oregon Trail as a kid? Oh, I do. It was um, it was on those old Apple... Do you guys remember those Apple IIe computers? They weren't even Macintoshes. And you had to use a little floppy drive to pop it in and you flip you pull it out and you flip the floppy drive floppy flip flop drive to the other side (laughs) that was a really fun game that's how that's how the little nerdy me spent many lunch times by myself in the the library i I, there's so many people from our generation who just have such powerful memories of that game and do you guys know it's a card game now what? And there's also an Oregon Trail 2. So they turned the original Oregon Trail into a card deck building game. And then the second they released it or they re-released it as Oregon Trail 2 with some updated graphics on the computer. But last time we covered all the infectious diseases that could kill you along the Oregon Trail. And most of them were poop related. And it looks as though we've lost poor Dr. Santosh to dysentery. Uh, so so uh, this week, let's deal with some of the other dangers. And we can start 
with accidental injuries. You know, the biggest accidental killers on the trail, there were shootings, drownings, being crushed by wagon wheels, injuries from domestic animals. So my anesthesiologist and my ER doc are going to run this show as we set off back along the Oregon Trail. So the number one most common cause of injuries that did not involve pooping were wagon accidents. Children and adults sometimes fell off or under these huge Conestoga wagons that were like 11 feet long and another four or five feet high, could carry two tons of food, and really all they had was a tiny little driver's bench along the top with a handbrake. So these were not things that, they weren't loaded up like the Beverly Hillbillies with granny on the back in a rocking chair. They were heavy versions of essentially semi-trucks back in the day. No airbags. So what kind of injuries? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, definitely no airbags unless uh, you fell onto the oxen. (laughs) So what kind of injuries would we see falling off a wagon? Um, Pros, Ward, what kind of things would would you expect? All right, so whenever you have a fall, um, the biggest thing is from how high you're falling, how big you are, and basically on what part of the body you land. Um, I would imagine that if somebody falls off of a wagon, they're probably not going to fall on their butt or their leg, or, or their feet, I should say, but more likely the injuries would be to their head, their upper spine, their arms, areas like that, which could range from mild levels of severity to almost instant death uh, if the injury was severe enough. Yeah, yeah, I would say, you know, I would consider that a, a, a what's analogous to today's motor vehicle collision or motor vehicle accident. That's MVC back in the Oregon days. And it's an and MVC. What's most important is really the mechanism of, of injury. So nowadays we always ask, Hey, were you wearing a seatbelt? Oh, was there an airbag deployment? Hey, was your car still drivable? You know, obviously back in the days, nobody wore seatbelts because they they didn't exist. And unless, like Josh said, an oxen has a particularly cushy butt, you're not going to be running into anything soft. So when a motor vehicle collision involving a non-seatbelted passenger, bad things happen. And I can tell you, they happen at very low speeds. In fact, when I took care of a older gentleman a few years ago, this was, he was barely going 10, 20 miles an hour and he was not wearing a seatbelt and just a little clunk. Before you know it, he comes in here with two cervical spine fractures, essentially losing nerve functions, anything from below his neck. And he had a hematoma forming in the back of the throat, which means there was a blood collection in the back of his throat that was closing off his airway. So even just a little tiny little clunk, if you're not wearing protection, you know, like everyone wasn't back in the Oregon days, terrible things could happen. And like Proz says, you know, head injuries, spine injuries, upper extremity injuries, I'll bet you, even at very low speeds, you don't have to be going very fast. You could just sustain some pretty scary stuff. Take home lesson, always wear protection. Always wear protection, yeah. <laughs> Condoms and seatbelts. And, and that doesn't mean those tiny little bonnets that you saw in the 1800s on women. So I was doing extensive research on this Oregon Trail episode by playing the Oregon Trail game and by watching old episodes of Deadwood and Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. And to see... Oh, that's a good show. What were some common injuries that you... Right? Yeah. I love that that was... That was the gimmick. Like, all right, what if we make a show set in the Old West? It's good. It's good. Where are you going with this? What's your What's your gimmick? The doctor is 
a woman. Gasp! It was the 1990s, so. so... So one of the injuries that actually was pretty common on the Oregon Trail was so common that it has its own name, a wagon wheel injury. Now, I know what you're thinking. Duh, when you get injured by a wagon. But a wagon wheel injury is actually a very specific kind of injury that was associated with these Conestoga wagons. Are Praz, Ward, do either of you know what a wagon wheel injury is? I've never treated one. Nor have I ever anesthetized yeah. anyone for it. What if what if I called it a Salter Harris type two fracture? Oh sure, a Salter Harris two. Yeah, that's just a pediatric fracture with involving uh, the part above the growth plate. You you mentioned you don't have to have a vehicle moving very fast, and in this case, the wagons were barely moving at all. Maybe you know one or two miles an hour, and little kids would be running around and playing. And periodically, they would trip or they would be somewhere they weren't supposed to, and their leg would get caught between the wagon and the spokes of the wheel. And this would end up leading to a concern where they could end up with growth plate dysfunction. So actually break the part of the bone that is responsible for extending and giving you all that fun height. Now... Pros, isn't there a surgery where they can break your legs to make you taller? Have you heard of this? I have, actually. And we did talk about that, I think, in one of the earlier episodes, either this season or last season, um, where they break the epiphysis and do leg extensions for people who've had um, developmental dysfunction or just structural dysfunction of their legs. But uh, the success level is pretty variable from what I remember. And, And certainly in kids... Up to 40% of the length in your lower extremity depends on the growth plate. So you're losing potentially a good 40% of your height if you get this kind of injury and it's not set. How would you handle this? This is a big orthopedic or, or bones and construction kind of injury. So the biggest concern I know would be growth plate dysfunction because this could occur even with a proper reduction of the fracture. In fact, oh, Josh, you and I saw a case of this in a clinic in Papua New Guinea uh, where, um, you know, modern medicine is not readily available. What what could happen is when you injure that growth plate, when that growth plate is injured on one side, well, the other side keeps growing. Your one side stops growing. You end up with uneven legs or uneven arms or uneven whatever body part that's uh, that's broken. I don't know if you remember this. We saw this little girl who a few years ago during her growth spurt injured her leg and has sustained a fracture and then two years later she comes into our clinic and one leg was exactly four inches shorter than the other and that's why she couldn't walk right she did receive medical care when she sustained that injury she just did not have the proper follow-up um you know that that fracture obviously needs to be properly reduced brought into a correct anatomical alignment, meaning, you know, the broken piece is not to the right, to the left. It's exactly center where it used to be. So new bone formation could form. And this takes a long time. Just for our late listeners, when you break a bone, when a fracture happens, the first thing that happens is a callus forms in between the two broken pieces. And that takes about a few weeks, three to four weeks. And then after that, soft bone uh, replaces that callus and that takes about a few months and then gradually it remodels itself into proper proper anatomical alignment and that takes another few months so proper healing for a fracture takes almost up to a year and that's all contingent upon that you keep that 
you support that extremity, you support that broken bone into correct alignment. Because if you don't, and you put stress on it, you move it, these two pieces of broken bone are not going to have a chance to heal straight. And you're going to end up with crooked extremities, bones that just never meet together. You just have a big old callus that with two broken ends that never meet. And that's what happened in that little girl who came in hopping mad. That's what happened to that girl who came in hopping mad. And uh, we, we sent her up to the provincial center to get an x-ray and get things started because um uh she's gonna have a long road to healing because she that that leg did not heal properly is there anything you could do this far in advance four years later i don't know it depends on what she had and what uh what what the capabilities of the orthopedic surgeons are i'll bet you here in the states yes yes if this happened and you had modern surgeons available yes there's there are things you can do but in places with limited resources, we're about to talk about some other remedies with that type of setting. I bet you not, not much. Probably not too much. So again, we're looking at very slow moving vehicular injuries and this wagon wheel. I just thought it was fascinating that this injury was such a common occurrence that it became known as just, oh, wagon wheel injury. That's what happens. Get your leg caught, <laughs> break your knee. Now, of course, the next biggest concern that we had playing the Oregon Trail would be you have your wagons, you have your infectious diseases. And of course, the best part of that game, once somebody did get dysentery and tuberculosis and you abandoned them, you would sit there and hunt until you had something like three tons of buffalo, right? Uh, Just me? (laughs) Sure. So, (laughs) Which leads to question. (laughs) So deaths due to wild animals did occur when somebody wandered off alone. But probably the greatest danger came from these enormous herds of buffalo that we used to sit in the computer lab just shooting. And the buffalo weren't dangerous to the people alone. They could even overrun entire wagon trains. Now, I thought to myself, a buffalo is just a slightly more intimidating-looking cow. How dangerous could they really be? And I went digging through the journals and... (laughs) <laughs> I vastly underestimated. So this first one that I, I just kind of want to go over with you guys is from the Journal of Wilderness Medicine. And this specifically referenced American buffalo from the scientific name Bison Bison, wow. which I just <laughs> like. You know, you can make a whole grammatically a whole grammatically correct sentence, which is uh, buffalo, 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 buffalo. Oh, because I've heard buffalo about that, yeah. not only refers to... Buffalo not only refers to the animal, but it is also a city in New York, as well as a synonym for bullying somebody. So you can have buffalo, buffalo, meaning a bison from New York, buffalo or bully, <laughs> buffalo, buffalo. So you can have bison from New York, bully other bison from New York. And it's a grammatically correct sentence that only uses one word. Buffalo, 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 buffalo. So now that the word is completely meaningless, I will tell you that bison or buffalo can appear stodgy, slow, stupid, and difficult to provoke. But injuries from bison have actually outnumbered injuries from bears in uh, recent years. Now, this study looked at Yellowstone National Park, home of some smarter than the average bears. And between 1978 and 1992... There were 56 documented cases and two fatalities from buffalo and bison injuries and only 30 bear attacks. Oh, wow. 
That's surprising. I there's more buffalo than bear. Does it the, the numbers correlate based on like relative size? No, apparently bison are just jerks. Now, for those of you who are other historical nerds, I am talking about injuries from bison because, of course, the buffalo that were present during the Oregon Trail have gone extinct. They just don't exist anymore, but they're bison are similar enough that the injuries would be the same. So the two main mechanisms of injury noted from this 15-year study were, one, was direct goring by the bison's horn or hooking. That results in deep puncture wounds, usually to buttocks or thighs. And I guess even if, you know, you fell off a wagon onto a buffalo, that might happen. Also, you could see some abdominal injury, like evisceration, their horns tearing your guts out. But the other kind of injury, aside from the goring, which is the sexy kind, is blunt trauma as the victim was shoved or butted by the animal's head, you know, (laughs) as the bison buffaloed them. Or if the victim had a rapid ground impact after being tossed into the air. So this study went over all 56 cases of what was done, but usually most of the cultures were negative. So we're not looking at an infectious cause of disease. This is a pure physical trauma. So what would be some equivalent injuries that you might see that would match up with being thrown into the air by a a bison or hooking or goring kind of injuries? This actually brings back a lot of memories of my um, ICU fellowship when we actually worked in a trauma unit. And I imagine the force that you'd be hit with a buffalo um, as it comes toward you wouldn't be unlike the force that somebody would have, as you mentioned earlier, being hit by a semi or being hit by a car that's moving at a decent speed. Whenever you see these people come in with these traumas, I mean, there's all kinds of different injuries, external and internal, that could be affected. They could have internal bleeding in all sorts of areas that you don't know. They could have various organs being lacerated or torn, like the liver or spleen, especially long bone fractures, usually in the femur, which we discussed earlier, or the tibia. And we really had to survey the the heck out of them just to really make sure you're finding everything, you know? Yeah. What do you mean survey? Do you hand them a questionnaire and say, you know, can you please list off all the <laughs> organs that have been injured? In spleen, check this box. Trauma surveys are divided right. <laughs> into primary, secondary, and tertiary. Uh, with the primary survey, the one that I'm usually the most involved in, when I get a patient for the first time, recognizing their airway, their breathing, their circulation, basically making sure that they can maintain the vital functions of life, that they're getting blood flow to wherever they need to go and um, getting oxygen and breathing everything else. The rest of the survey, the secondary survey, basically starts to look for, once you can keep yourself alive, what other injuries do they have? Like basically scanning them, doing x-rays finding exactly which bones are broken, which organs are hurting. Uh, There's a fast ultrasound exam, not just because it's quick, that's actually the name of the exam, where you actually look inside the abdomen with an ultrasound to see if there's fluid collections or bleeding next to vital organs. All things would would warrant an emergent surgery. I I forget what ST said for it. It Focus abdominal survey in trauma, I think. But I was going to say, back in the Oregon Trail days, they they didn't have CT scans or or <laughs> ultrasounds. I can't imagine being a surgeon back in those days. Even, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, if you were a trauma surgeon, 
and someone who was hit by a car came in or someone who was struck by a buffalo came in, you would have to clinically assess that patient and just open that patient up and look for just like physically survey, eyeball every part of that patient's body to figure out, hey, what's bleeding? What's broken? What's not broken? And subtle is like, oh, their like belly doesn't look right or their arms bent a little funny. And most of the injuries tend to be from hooking as these buffalo charged they would gore people in their way, and you'd get very deep puncture wounds. Now, I bring that up because in another study from the Journal of Forensic and Legal Medicine, it mentioned a buffalo attack in India. And attacks on humans by by domestic animals are usually not uncommon, especially in rural parts of India or other rural countries. But injuries due to buffalo goring people are very rarely observed, and they're different from other casualties, as the victims are usually recovered from the field or the forest. And the interesting thing about this one, because it was from a legal journal, it said the investigating officer could be misled as to the nature of the infliction of injuries to a possible homicide, because the horn of buffalo are various shapes and sizes— They're violent and goring, so they could be slashing or stabbing wounds. The wounds could be lacerations, crisscross, penetration of body cavities, and fractures. In the absence of an eyewitness, it becomes very difficult to believe the unsuspecting domestic water buffalo as an attacker. Which means, if you were not on the Oregon Trail and seeing these kinds of injuries, and you get to the next town and you're stabbed, they're going to say, like, what happened? Oh, a buffalo gored me. Are you (laughs) sure you didn't just get into another fight over the local prostitutes? Like, this is something that people wouldn't even believe because they're cows. (laughs) They just look like dumb creatures. The entire city of (laughs) Buffalo, New York is going to be on your case now, Josh. (laughs) You are banned from that city. Ward, let's say you, you are the local, you know, frontier doctor and a stab wound comes in. Or someone's reporting a a buffalo goring, and it's going to look a lot like you to a stab wound. How are you going to treat that in the emergency? If I were the local Wild Wild West doc, probably just good local wound care. Wash it out and um, debride it. Cut away any you know tissue that's not going to be viable, any flaps that, that are just not going to survive. Clean it out really well, and uh, hopefully... Give them a shot of whiskey or, you know, I don't know, a drop of opium or whatever it is they did back in the days. And maybe a line of cocaine for the doctor. <laughs> one for you, one for me. I think that's how they did it, right? One for me, one for you. And then uh, stitch them up and um, wish them good luck. Nowadays, I would actually, we would actually do just exactly what Proz said, you know, do primary survey, make sure he's safe, secondary survey, do a CAT scan to see where the knife wound, where the knife went or where, the, where, that, where that horn went. See if there's any vascular injuries, any nerve, arteries, veins being cut. But in the old, old west or on the Oregon Trail, wash it out. I'm so glad you brought up surgery because you're right. Usually there would not be a ton of surgeons along, although it's not unreasonable to think that there were doctors who traveled along the Oregon Trail with these wagon trains. You know, doctors want to move places too. And we know that doctors love to go to the West Coast because mm-hmm. half of our, you know, half of our crew is out there. Let's talk very briefly about what are the medicines. You're right, Ward. You said if you're a frontier doctor and you've got a couple different things handy, let's talk about what you would be carrying with you. One of the biggest things in first aid kits were these beefy white tablets of mercury chloride marketed as Dr. Rush's bilious pills. 
Now, for those of you who do not know Dr. Rush, Benjamin Rush was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and also related to obstetrics, as well as he has a medical school named for him right out here in Chicago, Rush University. He created beefy white tablets of mercury chloride that were designed to restore a patient's bile balance by inducing, and this is a direct quote from the bottle, heroic purging, but mostly... What they got used for was suppression of syphilis, because mercury did have that effect, and is an emergency laxative. So we covered mercury as a treatment for syphilis back in our pirate medicine episode. And it did have some medical benefit, except for the fact that it's incredibly toxic and poisonous. But due to their purging effect, they were known on the trail as uh, thunderclappers. If it you... also cures the condition of if you have too many <laughs> working brain cells, that'll fix that real fast. It's an incredibly neurotoxic, and it will kill your nerve cells and brain cells. You stopped into a local camp, mining camp along the way, and you visited a prostitute, or you had a touch of the ague or a cold. You might take, you might say, oh, you know, my systems are out of balance, because we were still operating almost to the level of the four humors, you know, the black bile, red bile. We weren't quite middle age medicine or dark ages medicine, but we weren't that far from it. So the men would pop one of these thunderclappers and basically attempt to violently expel whatever was bothering them from at least one of their orifices. Do you think people were a little bit a masochistic back then, just th- thinking, you know, okay, look, I've something is out of whack. Something's a humor is out of whack. I'm going to do something kind of painful and <laughs> a little unnecessary, just so that it feels like know. something was done. Purging, literally. I paid for my sins. I don't know, man. Pooping feels good. That's that was probably the response. Like, oh, I'm not sure what to do. Hey, we'll have a poop. Wait. Think about it. But I I don't think you're wrong. There probably was a little bit of masochistic because medicine's not supposed to taste good back then, right? You know, that's why you had to take a spoonful (laughs) of sugar or mix in cocaine to make your medicine palatable. (laughs) Uh, I'm pretty sure that was in the song. You know, just a spoonful of cocaine helps the medicine go go down. down. I think Disney edited it out uh, out of the final version. So let's look at some of the other common treatments that would be brought along to handle the trail and what they'd be used for. Uh, Also in your bag might be essence of peppermint, which was used to cure stomach aches and probably actually worked. Uh, Both peppermint and ginger are very good for settling nausea and stomach aches. That's why you're often told as a folk remedy to drink ginger ale or suck on a peppermint candy. Oh, we still use menthol as as an analgesic today. In fact, if you take cough drops, it's uh, one of the most uh, common ingredients is menthol. Peppermint was used to cure stomach aches, probably worked. Pine tar and turpentine, which was used for coughing due to the excessive dust on the trail. And again, may have worked if small enough quantities were taken. You definitely don't want to be drinking turpentine. For those of you unfamiliar with turpentine, it's paint thinner and remover. Um, But the tar and turpentine would probably leave just enough of a coating in your mouth that the dust would stick there instead of being inhaled into your lungs. So again, technically, it did what it was supposed to do. Also, you might have heart's horn, which was made from red deer antlers and was used 
successfully to treat the irritation and inflammation of insect bites. And you could also drink quinine tea, which had some use for malaria. We've talked about that before, where quinine does have antibiotic properties. It was also used for Rocky Mountain fever. Chamomile tea was used for aches and spasms, uh, which people still use today. Citric acid, which could ward off scurvy. So there was a lot of herb lore that was made. And of course, leeches were used for bloodletting occasionally. And I found this absolutely horrifying when you were using leeches. They said occasionally, depending on where you were bloodletting, a patient might accidentally swallow one. Now, if that doesn't terrify you, you would love the cure. So if one were to swallow a leech, this is one of the few treatments that doesn't actually involve direct purging. You would think, oh, maybe we should just throw it back up. No, wine, surprisingly enough, that would probably make them feel good either way. But they would drink it every 15 minutes until the leech was either too intoxicated or, yeah, basically. Had a blood alcohol level that was far through the roof. But that was just an (laughs) alcoholic's excuse. Oh, I swallowed a leech. I'm sorry. I have to drink again. Yes. You actually don't have to do anything for it. I mean, if you swallow a leech, your body's just going to digest it. It's not... A leech is not going to live inside your stomach. So these people were getting pretty soused. So, you know, who was coming up with all of these these medicines, right? You, you might be wondering. And by the 1840s, when a lot of emigrants started heading to Oregon on wagon trains, most people didn't really have a lot of use for mainstream medicine. This was still, you know, doctors who were known largely for just bloodletting and cocaine. That, those were the two main treatments back in the early 1800s. So a lot of people looked to folk remedies like Samuel Thompson. And Samuel Thompson, interestingly enough, was a folk healer doctor because the the title was granted rather loosely back then. And he based a lot of his herb lore off of Native American traditions. And we'll go into that you know, later this year about what are some of the Native American and First Nations people's treatments and healing traditions. But on one particular wagon train, there is a gentleman by the name of Sol Tethero. And the only reason we know his name is he kept a extensive journal, or I should say his son kept a daily journal of their trek on the Oregon Trail. So you know when people got sick, what treatments were given, who died. Basically, this journal was the basis for the Oregon Trail video game, knowing what kind of things to have your party expect. So the Lucky Ah. Ensign Souls Wagon Train, (laughs) a soul train, (laughs) back in 1845, got pretty good medical treatment for the time, despite Wagon Master Souls' lack of credentials. What he had was Samuel Thompson's Book of Folk Remedies, and here's a couple of the treatments that were included in that for you gentlemen to enjoy. Dysentery was treated with an egg and liver pill known as a costive, which was made up of dry beef fat to the, to the consistency of thick molasses, thicken it with may apple and bloodroot, roll it out with flour into pills, and dose two teaspoons at bedtime as often as the case needs. So again... To translate that, if you're having dysentery, which we talked about was a very diarrhea-heavy disease, you're supposed to take a pill mixed of flour, bloodroot, molasses, and beef fat and swallow that two teaspoons every night at bedtime. 
I don't know if any if anything's going to help dysentery without proper antibiotics and other fluids. <laughs> so why not? Why not try some beef gall <laughs> and molasses? <laughs> sounds delicious. Half of this stuff sounds like Hogwarts <laughs> ingredients. I have no idea what a what a colosynth or a blood root, but I, I suspect they're all probably local ingredients that were available along the Oregon Trail and the Pacific Northwest. So this was not coming totally out of left field, but certainly their lack of understanding of disease and bacteria probably didn't help too much. Uh, for example, if you had if you got desperate enough to ask for help with a cough or sore throat, here is the recipe for Oregon Trail NyQuil cough syrup. Boil the licorice root to a thick molasses. Take one ounce of Gilead buds, one gill of vinegar, one gill of skunk cabbage, and Ooh. half a tincture of libelia. Take a teaspoon or full or as often as the case requires to keep the phlegm loss to easy. Basically, they wanted you to take this mixture of licorice and skunk cabbage until your mucus was thin enough to spit sure. on the side of the road instead yeah. of coughing up globs. Oh, this would work. This would work. The molasses will make it work. That thick, sugary syrups, you know, sucking on a hard candy or a cough drop, that actually works. And they've actually done a study on honey versus cough syrups, yeah. and honey works. Full of honey helps the medicine go down. Or help the phlegm come so, up. That yep. is you can skip the skunk weed or skunk cabbage. That's kind of some of the basic plants and and medicines that be carried around and we'll go into those in more detail in a future episode but let's talk a little bit about surgery i mean as long as people have been performing medical procedures on each other they've had something on hands to kill the pain some people would get their hands on things like cocaine or marijuana or opium but there there were a lot of interesting anesthesiology techniques. So before we get to actual surgery on the trail, Proz, you want to give us a quick glimpse into the history of anesthesia and what well, people absolutely. used? absolutely. Keep in mind, modern anesthesia was not even around until the 1900s. And it had only just, the precursors had only just started to be developed in the 1850s at big hospitals and big universities, not the middle of the Oregon Trail in the middle of the country. So back then, you really had to work with what you had. Opium, cocaine, marijuana, pretty much all the illegal drugs out there right now were once life-saving. Alcohol was the, probably the most common one, not just for killing leeches, but also for um, numbing your senses to some degree. Weirdly enough, if they didn't have alcohol, sometimes they'd even try using lettuce and mulberry. That's uh, if you only have uh, uh, Medi-Cal. Uh, I got gotcha. <laughs> you. got lettuce. Yeah, <laughs> you got Medicaid. For those, you huh? got lettuce. You had lettuce. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've eaten lettuce plenty of times. I've never noticed any loss in no, um, no, I'm pain sorry. sensation. To these days where you try to look for alternative techniques to traditional narcotics, I guess back <laughs> then they also used other techniques besides drugging the patients up. Um, we have now what's called regional anesthesia where you can numb up one limb or the other while leaving the rest of the body relatively sensory intact. Well, they had a form of that in the 1800s where they basically did numb the leg, but they did so not by injecting medication, but they essentially put up a tourniquet and really raised, tied it so tight that there was no blood flow or sensation going to the leg, waited for it to get nice and numb and cold and with that pin tingly sensation, and then started cutting. 
Other times, um, they use literally the hammer to the head. Of course, I use that joke on patients all the time, but there was a time when people actually would. Did they laugh? <laughs> um, you know, like that joke is based on the fact oh, okay. that people actually once would use blunt head trauma to um, induce loss of consciousness. Of course, you could imagine that one. When one does hit somebody over the head, it's not always controlled. And there's certainly many drawbacks, like uh, not being able to wake up because you're bleeding out of your head. Some of the previous ones is, you know, the, the Incas managed to drill holes in the heads of their patients by chewing coca leaves and spitting into the wounds. So they, they went really hardcore with uh, anesthesia, like, ah, I'm going to spit but on that, you, and that's going to numb you enough for me to drill it, a hole. Yeah, that's how cocaine is used. It's a local anesthetic. It's not – people didn't use cocaine as in the way we you, you know, we do now, where you do a couple of lines and you get high. That's not what numbs you up. It's Cocaine is an excellent yeah. local anesthetic, and we still use it today for ENT so procedures um, to numb up mucous membranes. Um, but in those situations where they did spit into the wounds, it sounds like they would actually mm-hmm. – induce the wound, cause the pain first, and then sort of like damage control it afterwards rather than making it numb and uh, having a painless procedure. I don't I don't think they're <laughs> I don't think the people who had their skulls grilled into were meant to survive, right? Or maybe they were. I don't yeah. know, were they? It depends. I, I didn't research as much on Incas. We'll have to save right. that for a future episode. Hmm. It, it is the doctors who were doing cocaine. <laughs> Most doctors would use techniques to numb a limb, like compressing it. Some preferred, as Proz said, the direct approach and just knocked people over the head. For a few more delicate types, Far more delicate. surgeons yes. would offer unconsciousness <laughs> by strangulation. That definitely doesn't sound suspicious. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's better than lettuce. But hey, you know, but, like, uh, is it? Is it? A lot of people probably would rather um, I, I, I have the quick not. death rather than suffer through being cut open, and you know. So let's talk about surgery in the Old West and on the Oregon Trail. The most common surgical instruments that would be used were just a common butcher's knife, a carpenter's handsaw, and a shoemaker's awl. And the awl was used to take up the arteries and basically serve as as surgical clips. Uh, patients would be stretched out on planks that they might just take off the wagons and make ready for the operation. And you would wrap linen or compress the wounds to make a plank box in which a wound had been confined. For example, a wagon wheel injury. An examination of the wound is made in the box, and you would look to see if the limb had any bugs crawling out of it like maggots, because maggots only feast on dead tissue. So that would be a good indication of an infection. If you had to do an amputation, you would use your carpenter, butcher, and shoemaker tools. So you always wanted to make sure you had those people in your party. A carpenter was, you know, the next best thing to a surgeon. And you would get a pint of brandy and some quinine to numb things. You would prepare a dose which would be so bitter, so the patient had a choice of either drinking a horribly bitter alcohol to get them incredibly drunk, or I guess being strangled by their doctor. Or eating a salad. There you go. <laughs> or eating a salad, right. You know, salad or whiskey. Right. The best possible painkillers. Hey, strangulation doesn't so, sound so bad now, does it? Burns were usually treated by coating the skin with egg white, as this provided a sterile seal and helped keep the wound from drying out. Uh, other people would use axle grease made of animal fat and a little bit of beeswax. 
rattlesnake bites were treated just like you see in the movies. Somebody would slice open the bite wound and suck the poison out, which apparently, according to records, was pretty effective if done right away. Uh, Ward, how would that work out in the modern day? Would- oh, you never advise anyone to suck poison out of a wound. Uh, primarily because it, it doesn't work. You cannot suck poison out of a wound. Uh, once that poison is in your tissue, it's it's in there. And it's not like it's sitting in a little pocket where you can suck it out. It disperses into the tissue immediately. There are actually some non-high-tech ways you can deal with it. You would Tourniquet is no longer recommended, but you can apply some loose not too tight pressure to prevent the lymph from uh, carrying the poison to to the rest of the body. Not get too worked up. Not overexert yourself and speed up the uh, speed up heart rate, and uh, that could help delaying the spread of the poison until you get to a medical center where you can get the anti venoms. Yeah. Basically, you need you need anti venoms, and uh, you need a you need an ICU. You need surgeons because sometimes that that leg can swell up, and you could. You, you actually need to decompress that leg by fasciotomies. Surgery was largely f- battlefield medicine, even when you weren't on a battlefield. You saw off whatever the infected limb was because if you had given enough medicine of the time and it wasn't improving, that was it. Just cut the whole thing off. And as I said, you know, the most common way of treating things like fevers and basic infections was to cut open a vein and drain blood. A good doctor was expected to cut deep enough that the patient's blood would spurt into the air with every heartbeat. And then they would take one of the thunderclappers by Dr. Benjamin Rush. These medicines were usually administered until the patient began to drool uncontrollably, which is a classic sign of mercury poisoning oh, that they mistook for evidence that the medicine was working. I think back in those days, they were like, thanks a lot, Obama. <laughs> thanks, Geronimo. So there, there is a whole bunch of different... Of different diseases. So really, it turns out that a lot of the treatments seemed very similar to pirate medicine. It's based largely off herb lore and what was called granny medicine. Granny medicine being the idea that if a plant or a oil or a cream had an effect on the human body, there must be a medicinal use. You know, if you apply cayenne pepper, it causes the skin to burn or heat up so you can use that to burn off fevers or treat chills if something made you drool you could use it if your body got dry so it was the the theory of like calls to like or the similars that got to be known as granny medicine and that was the large rule of the day for accidental and surgical care which i believe wraps up our our episode on the Oregon trail and it's no wonder that so many people died along the trail that it's just a huge mm-hmm. unmarked grave full of folks who were yeah. orgoners left and right so the ga- video game wasn't wrong then Absolutely. it is that hard to make it on the oregon trail yeah it, it was not an unfairly balanced video game they knew what they were talking about and you know for those few of you who managed to successfully complete the game and make it to oregon well now you know why these are all the things that you would have to deal with along the way. <laughs> so uh, that that wraps it up. But before we completely end the episode, of course, we do have to include a Just the Tip. And our sometime travel correspondent, Sarah, has called in with a ones from, well, let's find out where she went this time, shall we? Hey, it's Sarah, your sometimes travel correspondent. If you were looking for a way definitely not to travel, I'd say buy a house that needs a lot of fixing up. But Travel Medicine is my favorite podcast to listen to while I'm painting. So there you go. 
anyway, I actually did finally make it out to see some of the world, and I can highly recommend going to Albuquerque, New Mexico. There's plenty to see and do there, but lots for nature lovers. You can take the Sandia Peak Trail. Now, this uh, peak rises over 10,000 feet, so you're in for some awesome high elevation training and excellent sightseeing. In the winter, there's skiing. You can take the tramway, which is an exciting high elevation ride to view the surrounding area. Also, I would recommend doing the Turquoise Trail. This is Route 14. It's an old route between... Santa Fe and Albuquerque. There's plenty to see and do, lots of museums, get you little stores. Of course, you can buy turquoise on the turquoise trail, but I opted for a giant hunk of petrified wood, of course, naturally. Once you get to Santa Fe, you should stop into Loretto Chapel. There is a miraculous staircase. Stop in and, and read the legend of how this got there, but it is a really, really nice piece of history, and Santa Fe itself is pretty cool with hanging dried chilies everywhere, great food beautiful scenery. But my favorite thing to do in the Albuquerque Santa Fe area was the Tent Rocks National Park. So like the wave rocks that Josh mentioned in Arizona, this is something spectacular to see. Uh, these geological features were formed by volcanic explosions a long, long time ago, and it's just like nowhere else on Earth. This is a hike that you definitely want to do. It's not that difficult. And you the sights are indescribable. I thought I was walking on another planet. But if you're looking some, for some great travel medicine items, you can stop into the Nuclear Museum in Albuquerque. This is great. There's all kinds of a history there about, well, developing nukes. And also uh, all the radiated, <laughs> radiated water and other medicines used back in the day that was discussed a little while ago on travel medicine. And to go along with this, they have the original Back to the Future DeLorean that you have to stop in to see. I would stop into the museum just to see that. Anyway, this is Sarah signing out. Get out there, see Radiation. the world, and enjoy Albuquerque and Santa Fe. The DeLorean is in New Mexico at the Radiation Museum? Don't drink the water, but do see the museum. Sarah is an amazing travel correspondent, and to go out, and she gave you a whole handful of things to do in the American Southwest, and as we have dedicated this month to largely frontier medicine, seems like a good place to check out. So that wraps up this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback, which you can find our sources and all the places to reach us down in the show notes. If you would like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can also find links to do that in the show notes as well on our Patreon page or via Google Voice. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all of our co-hosts. Music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.